Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The presidential election is little more than a year away, and Donald Trump is hitting hard on immigration, proposing tough changes to certain policies that he says will reduce the number of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. But will the president's proposals stand up in court? From detaining immigrants indefinitely to limiting who gets legal status if they've used public assistance programs. Coming up, we break down the proposals and hear how Connecticut is joining other states to challenge the Trump administration. And later, who should be permitted to become a U.S. citizen? We'll talk to a law scholar who says the Constitution is fairly clear on this point, despite the president calling birthright citizenship, quote, ridiculous. You can join our conversation, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or as always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, I want to welcome back to the show, Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. Nice to see you again. Good morning. So uh, you've had a fairly uh, busy uh, few weeks. And lately, we're hearing a lot about uh, these immigration policies, uh, Connecticut joining other states uh, and challenging the Trump administration. Uh, Coming up, we're going to be talking about uh, the 14th and Amendment in connection to uh, citizenship. But this amendment also guarantees due process as well as the Fifth Amendment. Uh, So as an attorney, uh, tell us what due process means. So due process means you're entitled to um, a a fair hearing, um, to be treated fairly um, during, you know, any kind of, um, if there's an arrest, uh, detention, um, and then if there's a proceeding before any kind of tribunal um, or a judge uh, or uh, immigration court, and and it entitles you um, to the same process and fairness that that all Americans, uh, whether you're citizens or green card holders, and in most cases, um, whether you're documented or not, you're entitled to due process and equal protection of the laws, which, as you note is protected in two places, in the 14th Amendment, which applies to the states, and in the Fifth Amendment, which applies to the federal government. Now, we're talking about due process because uh, the Trump administration has uh, a new expedited removal rule that grants uh, the Department of Homeland Security the authority to deport uh, undocumented immigrants without due process. So tell us more about this rule and what specifically concerns you. So what concerns me is that the absence of process, that that there can be arbitrary action by um, a law enforcement professional or um, um, an immigration official, uh, not before a judge, um, without the assistance of counsel and, and not according to um, a set regimen of rules and procedures where you have an opportunity to consult with an attorney, where you have an opportunity to make an argument, for example, for asylum or with respect to your health care needs or or um, with respect to your children. And those are all the things that go into due process. And and I think what the president is saying is that he wants to speed it all up. And, and what that signals to all of us is he wants to blow through whatever rules and protections there are and just grab people and toss them either out of the country or into detention. And and we all know what that looks like, right? It's it's overcrowded 
rooms and camps behind bars and fences and children separated from their parents and, and children wrapped in mylar. And this isn't some dystopian vision, right? We've seen these pictures ourselves uh, on, on the news and on the internet, and it's deeply disturbing. Uh, you've joined a coalition of attorneys general uh, led by California to oppose this expedited uh, removal rule, uh, the coalition bringing an amicus brief before uh, the district court for the District of Columbia. So what does that ask for specifically, Attorney General Tong? Um, we're looking to stop this practice right away, and we're considering all of our um, legal claims and remedies, including injunctive relief to stop this president from taking this action as we did with respect to the border wall when the president, in my view and the view of a majority of Americans, uh, declared a national emergency that that um, that he's not entitled to declare and to build a border wall that Congress has said that he shall not build. And so we sought an injunction there. We were successful. That's still being litigated. And, and we're doing the same uh, not just with respect to um, expedited re- removal, but considering all of our options on indefinite detention, uh, on the public charge rule, as you referenced earlier. You know, what's really disconcerting is that this is not an attack on some, um, you know, discrete or small group of people, a small minority that nobody sees. Um, you know, this isn't, um, this is really an attack on. Uh, the core of Connecticut's workforce. It's an attack on all of our families. It's an attack on my family, my immigrant family. My parents came here as immigrants, and uh, I'm the first American in my family, born in Hartford Hospital. And I know we're going to talk about that later, but my parents are naturalized citizens, and I have birthright citizenship. Uh, And so this attack, again, is not on some mythical other, but it's an attack on all of us and our families because we share so much with the people who have been targeted by this president. Uh, William Tong is in studio with us here on Where We Live. He's Connecticut's attorney general. Uh, We're talking about uh, specific action uh, the state of Connecticut has taken, uh, joining with other states in opposition to specific uh, immigration uh, policy changes uh, rolled out by the Trump administration. Uh, First, we're talking about expedited uh, removal uh, by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Um, You can join our conversation. You know, what's your take when you hear about these changes to immigration policy? Are some of them warranted? Are you up? upset uh, to hear uh, that of particular uh, policies that might have impacted you or your family. Uh, you can join us, 888-720-WNPR or 888-720-9677. Uh, before we talk about uh, the public charge and also um, other issues, uh, Attorney General Tong, looking back at expedited removal, this was something that uh, President Obama had also changed, uh, where they would have been able to deport people within so many miles from the border. This was back in 20. 14. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, what, what's different now if the Obama administration sought to do this uh, in 2014, and now the Trump administration is also looking at ways to uh, remove people who've come into the country illegally? Yeah, I think, I think the difference is that, you know, President Obama was enforcing our nation's immigration laws, and he had a constitutional duty to do that. And, and I don't deny that um, that they had uh, an aggressive, aggressive enforcement regime under President Obama. But uh, under President Trump, um, it seems to be motivated much more by um, hate, by a racist fringe that forms the base of his political support. Um, it seems quite arbitrary, the people that they are 
attacking, and um, it seems, uh, you know, as as evidenced by recent comments um, um, that by Kelly, that they think that um, the Statue of Liberty, um, you know, means to welcome only European immigrants uh, and not all immigrants, and and so it's it's motivated by uh, and driven by. Um, a much more discriminatory policy, um, and and it's much more uh, unfair and abusive. Again, with respect to the separation policy of separating children from from their parents, and then promptly losing track of those kids and not being able to reunify them with their parents, putting them in camps at the border. Um, you know, it's that it's that sort of work. And then um, the Muslim ban, for example, at the airports. There's so much I'm. I'm trying to tick it all off, and and frankly, there's so much action um, by ICE and by um, USCIS and our nation's immigration authorities that um, is patently unfair um, and doesn't comport with due process and equal protection. That's fundamentally what's different about this president. Uh, coming up, we're going to be talking about uh, one of the other changes uh, that the president would like to see, and that's uh, who can become a U.S. citizen. But let's uh, move on to uh, another uh, challenge that uh, Connecticut has joined, I, I believe, with uh, New York, uh, Vermont, and the city of New York, where it's going to challenge this uh, Trump administration change over the public charge rule. Uh, in a press release, uh, you stated, this rule is yet another cruel and unconstitutional racist ploy to intimidate and penalize immigrants of color. It cannot stand. Explain what you mean. What would be the long-term impact of this uh, change and who gets legal status? Well, the long-term impact is that if um, you're uh, here on temporary status and you wish to change your status and and earn a green card, or if you're here on a green card, you're a lawful permanent resident and you want to become a citizen, if you have um, taken part in any federal program um, for a 12-month period over the last three years. And these are our core federal programs like Medicaid, like Section 8, housing assistance. Um, if you've accessed those programs and, and food stamps also SNAP and, and you've just gotten a little bit of help uh, for a 12-month period, you could see um, very serious adverse immigration consequences. So if you're on temporary status, you might not get your green card, and that might lead to your deportation. Um, if you have your green card, you might not become a citizen, and that could also set off a chain of events um, that would severely compromise your immigration status and then and then compromise your ability to hold down a job, um, to get housing, to provide health care, for yourself and your family to provide food um, for your children who, by the way, may be American-born, American citizen children. So that's the direct impact. The um, one step removed is that if you're an immigrant and um, you're here in this country and you have a green card and you're not a lawyer and you don't know what all this means, you just know that if you um, receive food stamps because you need some help, uh, or if you receive a Section 8 housing voucher, that, that that could harm you and your family. And so what are you going to do in that instance as an immigrant in Connecticut? You're going to forego SNAP. You're not going to take food stamps. You're going to take food literally off the table away from your American citizen children. You're going to forego housing assistance. You're going to forego Medicaid. You're going to be chilled um, from accessing programs 
that are that are really important to help you live and to put a roof over your head. And what's really disturbing to me is that we're talking about um, working people. We're talking about the core of our workforce. And as I said the other day, um, we once had a president who declared war on poverty, but this president, President Trump, has declared war on the poor and has weaponized um, people's poverty against them. And and that ultimately, you ask what's the difference between President Obama and President Trump. Uh, one of the main differences is not only that it's cruel, but, but that President Trump's policies are pointless. You know, it, it makes no sense to me to attack the core of our workforce, the paraprofessional, I said, in West Hartford, or the bus driver gearing up for the start of school uh, this year, the people that clean this office building. Um, this is the core of Connecticut's workforce, and to take a hatchet to their lives and our way of life is utterly pointless. Mm. Um, you say it's pointless. Uh, when President Trump uh, brings up these policy changes, is there evidence that there are uh, undocumented immigrants or immigrants that may have uh, some type of legal status that are just persisting on public assistance, that um, are not uh, making sure that they can now live on their own? I mean, where does this? where is this drawn from? Attorney I think I, with respect to the, the public charge rule, um, it has nothing to do with undocumented immigrants. And as we know, most, uh, if not all, undocumented immigrants don't have access to the programs that we're talking about. Um, and so what we're talking about are people who are here who are immigrants um, like my parents and like so many people across this state, many people who have green cards, and many and most of them work. Um, and And most of them pay taxes. And the vast majority of uh, the people that we're talking about form the very core of Connecticut's economy and the nation's economy. And, and to go after them uh, and to make them afraid uh, and to compromise their ability um, to care for their families uh, is a drag on the economy. And, and it's a drag, obviously, on our freedom and our liberties. But, but President Trump seems to be most concerned about our nation's economy uh, and and we all are, are concerned about growth in our nation's economy. So why is he attacking it? Mm. Uh, do we know how many people in the state of Connecticut who are waiting for their green card or um, in some sense have some type of legal status, not ex uh, U.S. citizen uh, yet, um, how many people would be impacted by this public charge rule, Attorney General Tom? It's about 200,000 people by our last count. Um, you know, again... These are people that have green cards or are here on a lawful temporary status. And, and again, we're talking about not just the adults, but their children, many of whom, uh, like me, are American-born children, American citizens born to non-citizen parents, as I was. Uh, we have one more uh, topic we want to hit before we go to break, and that is uh, what you have referred to uh, just a couple of minutes ago. And there is now uh, plans in the Trump administration uh, to indefinitely uh, detain immigrant families. This would uh, go against this decades-old Flores Settlement Agreement. Give us some background on that agreement, uh, William. Yeah, so generally um, you're not supposed to detain children, especially for more than 20 days. And that's been the law. And that reflects uh, our broader understanding of due process and equal protection, 
uh, and and fairness, and and we're commanded by um, federal law to um, take care uh, and make sure that that groups of people um, like immigrants, undocumented immigrants, that um, disproportionately lack political power and um, uh, access to legal representation, for example, in the first instance, that that these are people that we have to take extra care to protect and make sure that we preserve their um, rights and liberties and due process. Um, and I think what we're seeing here is that the president wants to drive a truck right through all of that or over it and ignore um, not just the Flores settlement, but uh, I referenced the other day the U.S. Supreme Court's command in the in the Caroline Products case, um, there's a famous footnote known as the Caroline footnote that says that, that, that constitutionally we're bound to protect discrete and insular minorities uh, and, and that includes immigrants, particularly undocumented immigrants and um, people that uh, deserve the fullest protection of our constitution and our laws. Uh, and the Trump administration's aim with this uh, this uh, change to the decades-old Flores Agreement, uh, their concern being when someone uh, comes into the country illegally, um, they're able to uh, be released and live wherever they want while their case goes through immigration court, and that's what they want to stop. They want to detain and know where these people are while the, the, the hearing uh, or quickly to detain them. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, again, uh, their claims of why this is necessary. Look, my my thoughts are there that the pre- the president has shown, um, and that ICE and USCIS have shown that um, they're incapable of administering such a system, and and that system has shown that when you detain people uh, in camps and in um, locked rooms and be- behind steel bars, and you wrap the children in mylar. That not only is it unsanitary, not only is it uh, unfair and unjust, but people die and children have died. And and there's no way that a system like that um, can be administered fairly when you have the wholesale warehousing of people. Um, I'm not suggesting that law enforcement um, doesn't do a jo- its job. Of course, we strongly support law enforcement and our immigration enforcement officials in the lawful exercise uh, and discharge of their duties. And there's a, a variety of mechanisms and technology, I should add, where people can keep track, where law enforcement can keep track of um, immigrants uh, as they work their way through the process. But putting them in uh, warehouses and warehousing human beings is not the answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you represent uh, your attorney general for the whole state of Connecticut. Uh, there are individuals in our state who uh, support uh, the president's policy changes. They think that something needs to be done uh, to uh, change up our immigration system. What's your? What are, how would you respond to them where uh, they would be critical of the challenges that you've signed on um, for the state of Connecticut? I, I would ask them to um, consider who they are and where they came from and how their families came to this country. Um, I, If the president were here now, he might criticize me or ridicule me for being an anchor baby because I was the first American, again, born in Hartford Hospital to non-citizen immigrant parents. And um, for our listeners, some may know that my dad at one point overstayed his tourist visa and was at one point undocumented. Um, and it was President Nixon, a Republican president, 
um, who showed tremendous compassion and grace and allowed my father to stay in this country and to become a citizen. Uh, but that happened after I was born. And if I'm not mistaken, President Trump was born to an immigrant father. And so he also, uh, you know, is from a uh, in certain manner of speaking, is a anchor baby himself. So I think people need to consider that um, we all came from someplace not here unless you're Native American. Mm-hmm. And, and most of us uh, immigrated here um, a generation or two ago. And, and um, so many of us share uh, the very same experience with immigrants that are coming to this country now. And these are immigrants who by and large are powering our economy, in, including uh, core parts of our service economy like my parents did when they ran a restaurant. And so I would say to everybody across the state, you know, if you um, – work here in Connecticut, any business across Connecticut, you rely on immigrant workers and you rely on immigrant customers and the state relies on immigrant taxpayers. Um, And you can't pull a huge part of the economy in our workforce out of Connecticut's economy and and expect it to survive. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to work. Connecticut Attorney General uh, William Tong is in studio with me. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, he's one of several attorneys general who are challenging the Trump administration's latest efforts to change immigration policy in the U.S. We just uh, ran down uh, several of those. Uh, After the break, we're going to dive into the president's comments on birthright citizenship. And you can join the conversation, 888-720-WMPR. That's 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Hundreds of thousands of children born to illegal immigrants are made automatic citizens of the United States every year because of this crazy, lunatic policy that we can end, that we can end. That's President Trump speaking at a rally in 2018. He calls birthright citizenship a policy, but it's actually a right guaranteed in our U.S. Constitution. For more background on citizenship in the United States, joining us now by phone is Garrett Epps. He's a U.S. Supreme Court correspondent for The Atlantic, professor of law at the University of Baltimore, and author of Democracy Reborn, a book on the history of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Garrett, welcome to our show. Nice to be here. And I can uh, let our listeners know that you can join the conversation. The number 888-720-WMPR or 888-720-9677. William Tong is also here with us. He's Connecticut's Attorney General. Uh, But Garrett, let's start with uh, the 14th Amendment, uh, which uh, guarantees uh, anyone born in the U.S. uh, that they are citizens. Give us some background on the origins of the 14th Amendment. Well, the 14th Amendment has its origins in two things. And the first is uh, the infamous Dred Scott decision of 1857, in which a pro-slavery majority on the United States Supreme Court said uh, that black people could never become citizens of the United States. Not even Congress could make them citizens of the United States. The United States was a white nation. And this contributed uh, greatly to the onset of the Civil War. At the end of the war, the framers of the 14th Amendment 
wanted to make sure that this notion that citizenship was racial uh, was killed dead uh, and did this by means of the citizenship clause. But it's important to understand they were also aware uh, of the issue of immigration and the assimilation of immigrant populations into the United States uh, because at that time, in 1868, uh, the United States was experiencing a huge surge in, in, in immigration. Immigrant soldiers, in fact, had been an important force in helping the Union win the war. And the percentage of foreign-born individuals in the United States uh, was roughly as high as it is today. In other words, uh, we were really at a high watermark in terms of immigration at that time. So in the debates, uh, they were asked, well, you know, why don't you just say that that uh, black people are citizens? And the answer was, we want to create a citizenship that is universal, that takes in everybody in this country. We don't want there to be another population of second-class people in this country who can never hope to be citizens. And citizenship uh, needs to be universal, and that's why this language was adopted. Uh, there's a lot in the 14th Amendment. Uh, tell us specifically what the amendment says uh, in relation to birthright citizenship, Garrett. It says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the states wherein they reside. So you can see that if you're born in the U.S. and subject to the jurisdiction, which is a very common sense legal term, meaning that U.S. courts and U.S. law enforcement have jurisdiction over you, then you are uh, a citizen of the U.S. The the uh, apologists for the Trump uh, uh, assault on immigration have tried to create this uh, extremely phony meaning of the term subject to the jurisdiction, uh, saying that it means something very uh, complicated and special, uh, something that's sort of like the Da Vinci Code, you know, that they've found a stone somewhere that tells them that it means something other than what it says. But it means what it says. It's a lawyer's term, uh, and if you think, ask yourself whether an undocumented alien in the United States can be arrested. The answer is yes. Can that person be sued? The answer is yes. Can they put, be put in jail? The answer is yes. They are subject to the jurisdiction of our courts, and so are their children. So regardless of the immigration status of the parents, the 14th Amendment says in its clear text, their children are citizens from birth. Uh, Garrett Epps, who's uh, joining us uh, by phone, who is a U.S. Supreme Court correspondent for The Atlantic, also professor of law at the University of Baltimore and author of Democracy Reborn, a book on the history of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Uh, when we hear President Trump uh, talking yet again, because he's brought this up before, you've written extensively about it uh, since he became president, even before he became president, questioning uh, for President uh, Barack Obama's uh, citizenship uh, status. Uh, can a president actually do do something about birthright citizenship if it's in our Constitution? No. Um, and, you know, it, he certainly can make the attempt. He certainly can harm a lot of people. He certainly can uh, frighten immigrant families and make them feel persecuted. Uh, but uh, under the U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land. That's in Article 6, Section 2. And it is not subject to alteration. Uh, by the president. Now, the president claim, will claim to be interpreting the amendment, but there's virtually nothing in the 14th Amendment that suggests that it is there to give the power 
uh, over citizenship to the president. The 14th Amendment is overwhelmingly concerned with giving power to Congress. And it's important to understand that at the time this amendment was drafted, it was drafted in part as a reaction to President Andrew Johnson, who, uh, you know, was until recently considered to be the most racist and most irascible and most erratic president the United States has ever had. I think he's now in the number two position. Uh, but, but the idea was we are restricting the power of the president. So back in the 80s, when this idea of attacking the citizenship of, of American-born children first came out, the idea was, well, we'll have a constitutional amendment. We'll change it that way. And, you know, that's not happening. You can't, you can't get three-quarters of the states to do something so wicked and stupid as this. So then they said, well, we'll get Congress to pass a statute. Well, the politics of doing this, it turns out, uh, are fatal to elected uh, officials because, uh, you know, the, the people you are persecuting, first of all, are citizens, and they have, they have cousins, they have aunts, they have uncles. It, it will destroy any party that really tries this kind of full-scale attack. Uh, on citizenship. So now they've fallen back on the idea that somehow the president magically has this power. And if if Trump tries this, it will be the grossest overreach by any chief executive since at least the steel seizure of the 1940s. It will be an extraordinary assertion of constitutional power to change the very meaning of the Constitution, and I hope would be resisted by the courts. Attorney General William Tong, your response. Yeah, to I, the I, I think um, Professor Epps makes excellent points. All of that is true, except the real danger here is that the president has shown that the Constitution and what courts say are no deterrent to him and the actions that he'll take. He is right now building a border wall um, that we have sued to stop him from building and that Congress has said that he cannot build. And, and that's, um, you know, that's what we call a constitutional crisis when uh, other branches of government, co-equal branches of government, the judiciary and the legislature and state attorneys general have taken action to stop him from doing something he is not legally empowered to do. And so the great fear is that this president uh, acting through someone like Ken Cuccinelli um, will blow through constitutional norms and uh, the very text of the 14th Amendment uh, and will take action uh, not just to change birthright citizenship but to make good on his uh, threat to denaturalize American citizens or expedite the removal of immigrants without due process or any number of things that not only has he threatened to do but he has shown an inclination to do um, in in gross violation of his constitutionally appointed powers. You can join our conversation as we talk about uh, President Trump's comments on birthright citizenship. Uh, the number 888-720-WNPR. Kai is calling in. Kai, go ahead. Hi there. Kai calling in from uh, Route 9 North, heading towards Bristol, Connecticut. How are you folks doing today? Doing well. Be careful driving there, Kai. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I got the Bluetooth in my ears right now. Um, First, I just want to say, if any citizen is labeled a domestic or uh, a terrorist of any type, they can be charged or executed abroad without due process. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, moving backwards, I think it is. I think it ought to be a right for any citizen to um, remember that this is a place of freedom, 
and with freedom comes great responsibility. So if anyone is a true uh, liability to um, our great nation, I think they their citizenship uh, should be able to be put at least on pen. You know, um, it is a right and born or not. But the reason why I'm calling is um, the senator who was speaking earlier, I'm sorry, the attorney general, I believe, who was speaking earlier said, well, one or two generations ago, we all came from somewhere else. And what I want to pose is, did we come here legally one or two generations ago, or did we just cross the border? With that being said, I do believe that illegal um, border crossing um, to Canada or to Mexico or anywhere else, again, it's illegal. If you're coming here with your papers, if you're coming here uh, to make sure you're medically safe and you're not a, a, um, I guess, a liability to the safety of yourself and others, um, I have no issue with immigration. But the question is, how can we quantitatively ensure that these people are, one, legally immigrating here, and two, if they are not legally immigrating here, how are we supposed to keep track of them while they are, uh, quote-unquote, put to do process? All right, Kai, I'm going to let Attorney General Tong uh, respond uh, to your comments. Well, you know, I think that that kind of language, medically safe, is the sort of language the president is using. And... um, is is clearly hateful and racist, this idea that, you know, immigrants come here to spread disease. Um, you know, it's that sort of bigoted attitude towards immigrants that has brought us to this place. Um, but this isn't the first time that we've been here, right? And people are shocked that we've put children uh, and families uh, in detention maybe indefinitely now, and separated children from their families. We've done this before. We did this when we interned 125,000 Japanese Americans on American soil. And and to answer the concern about whether somebody came here legally or not, that's really a red herring because um, our immigration laws um, were not in the same place uh, that they are now 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 150 years ago. And, and, you know, frankly, 100 years ago, people probably just got off uh, at that time a boat and and nobody questioned who they were or where they were from. And and they got citizenship sort of by default. Um, Also, 100 years ago, my family couldn't come here at all. Um, The Chinese Exclusion Act excluded um, families like mine, except for uh, working male members of our family who could come here to build the railroads. So to um, say that a generation or two ago or three generations ago, people came here legally is um, just a misrepresentation of of how immigration law has developed over time and is Mm you know, essentially a, a, a false statement. I wanted to go back to the birthright uh, question uh, with us on the phone. Uh, Garrett Epps is a professor of law at the University of Baltimore. Uh, Garrett, some, this is uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has actually uh, ruled on the citizenship question in a case, uh, uh, United States uh, versus uh, Wong Kim Ark. Tell us about that precedence. Well, Wong was an American. He was born in San Francisco. In fact, if you go to San Francisco, you can still see his birthplace, a very substantial family home in the middle of, of what's now called Chinatown in uh, uh, San Francisco. He was born to two 
immigrant parents from China. And this was at a time when U.S. law said that Chinese people could emigrate, they could come and work, but they could never become citizens. This was the law, uh, the statute law. And so he was the child of two people who were not eligible to U.S. citizenship. And when the time came for him to uh, leave and re-enter the United States, the Immigration Service said, we're not going to honor any passport to you because you are not an American citizen. Your parents are not American citizens. They're not welcome here uh, as citizens, and so you are ineligible. And Wong took his case all the way to the United States Supreme Court, and this was widely seen as a very important test case. And the, this is in the late 19th century. The court, which was really, now remember, this was really at a period when the Supreme Court was at the absolute lowest point of its racism. This was right around the time of Plessy versus Ferguson and other racist cases out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Nonetheless, they said the plain text of the Constitution says this man is a U.S. citizen by birth. The fact that his parents may be people that we have decided to exclude from our uh, uh, polity is irrelevant compared to the constitutional text and the policy of universal citizenship. And if you go back to the debates uh, at the time of the framing of the 14th Amendment, uh, people asked, they asked the, the, the authors of the amendment, now look, you guys aren't serious about making uh, Chinese people's children Right, but we don't want Chinese here. You don't mean Chinese citizens born in the uh, people born in the United States are citizens. And the answer was very clear. It was Senator Conis of California said, absolutely, absolutely. If they are born here, then they uh, are ours. Uh, so Wong Kim Ark has been the law for more than a hundred years, um, and you know there's some attempts to question it by saying, well, the parents were not so-called illegal aliens, because there was no such term. The term illegal alien, in fact, did not exist until 1948. Uh, but uh, I think it's, it's pretty darn powerful evidence of what the amendment says and what the history shows and what it means in terms of our constitutional order. Everybody born here belongs here. We're, they're all our own. We don't have a class of second-class people. And the important thing to remember is, you know, when uh, the National Socialists gained power in Germany, the very first thing they did was rewrite the citizenship laws so that they could exclude disfavored groups from being uh, citizens by birth in Germany. I want to take uh, one more call. Noel is calling from Shelton. Noel, go ahead. Yes, good morning. I just wanted to speak to the previous caller who, in in listening to him, seems aligned with Trump's policies. But this issue is so extremely complicated, it can't just be divided into black and white. And specifically, the immigrants coming from Central America are coming here because of what we did to their countries um, going back decades. Um, but specifically um, in the 80s under Reagan's policies, and um, they are living the consequences of the terror that we brought on them. And so I think it's on us to reflect our personal responsibility and welcome people and help fix the problems that cause them to want to leave. People don't want to leave. They don't want to leave their home. They have to. Their lives are being threatened. 
Uh, thank you, Noelle, for your call. Uh, Attorney General Tom. Well, I, I think that's uh, an, an excellent point um, that is made another way, which is as President Trump threatens to dismantle a system of foreign aid uh, to countries in Central and South America and countries south of uh, of our southern border, that 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 wreaks uh, tremendous havoc and uh, damage to those economies, and and causes people to lose their livelihoods and their homes, and to seek opportunity elsewhere, um, which may include uh, the United States. The other thing uh, we should always note, and I've made this point earlier, which is our economy depends on immigrant labor, and frankly, whether you invite people here or not, the uh, economy of this nation draws immigrants here because we need them to work and uh, we depend on them uh, all across our economy from the service sector to the manufacturing sector. Um, this country was built on immigrant labor, labor and still functions on immigrant labor and the idea that we can stop it um, um, and and then turn around and deport 12 million people um, just doesn't make any economic sense at all. I want to thank William Tong for joining us, Connecticut's Attorney General. Uh, thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Also, Garrett Epps was with us, a professor of law at the University of Baltimore, author of Democracy Reborn, a book on the history of the adoption of the 14th Amendment. Uh, as one of his uh, articles noted, the 14th Amendment means what it says. If you are born in this country, you are a U.S. citizen. Garrett, thank you for joining us today. You bet. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I am Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we turn our attention to Hartford and the area around Dunkin' Donuts Park. What's going on with development in that part of the city three years after the Yard Goats started playing games at the stadium? Joe Cooper from the Hartford Business Journal will update us on the Dono North. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tomorrow we continue our mayoral uh, conversations. Joe Gannam running again to become Bridgeport mayor. The primary is September 10th. Uh, tomorrow he'll be in studio with us and you can join us too. Uh, right now we wanted to turn our attention to uh, the area around Dunkin' Donuts Park. This is the stadium where the Hartford Yard Goats play. They're nearing the end of their third season. The games are pretty popular among residents throughout the state. But what else is going on around uh, that part of Hartford? Uh, joining us by phone, Joe Cooper, web editor for the Hartford Business Journal. Joe, welcome back to the show. Morning. Thanks for having me on. So a development around Dunkin' Donuts Park. What happened recently uh, that might see some of the plans that Hartford has uh, go forward? Well, the city had a couple of major victories this summer. Um, the last couple of years, the development around the ballpark has been tied up in a uh, legal battle between the fire developers of the ballpark and uh, the city. And uh, a jury in July um, the city was uh, justified in its firing of the, the planners and of the developers in 2016. And uh, just earlier this month, um, a judge uh, lifted the liens that the former developers placed on the developments around the ballpark, which blocked development until this point. Um, the city says it's ready to move forward with development. The, the newly selected developer, RMS Coes and Stanford, says they're ready to move forward and, uh, with shovels in the ground potentially by the end of this year. So center plant construction, they were the ones sued uh, by uh, the city of Hartford. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, the other way around, they sued the city of Hartford. Um, now that this decision's come out, are they going to appeal the decision? Will that uh, uh, prevent that development to go forward? 
Right. So Center Plans filed notice that they plan to appeal uh, July's verdict, and they're also planning to ask the court to review um, its decision earlier this month to lift those property liens. Uh, that could be uh, take months or even years to decide, um, but the courts have decided that the newly selected developer in Stanford is allowed to move forward with the project, assuming the risk. Mm. Um, so I understand Center Plan also has to pay uh, the city of Hartford, what, over $300,000. I'm just curious, do we know how much the city of Hartford has spent uh, trying to defend uh, in court uh, and also to try to get this money from Center Plan? Um, I surmise it's, it's easily in the hundreds of thousands, if not into the millions. Um, they haven't you know, come out with a, the exact amount. That uh, number kind of remains to be seen. That's not something they usually float around. So the Stamford uh, developer, so what could we possibly see around uh, the stadium? Tell us about some of the plans. So it's an ambitious project. You know, the ballpark was a linchpin for all of the mixed-use development around the ballpark. The plans call for up to 800 apartment units, 60,000 square feet of retail space, uh, 2,000 parking spots, parking garages. Um, uh, it's up to uh, Mayor Bronin. He would like to see a grocery store there. He's still hopeful that downtown will still get its first grocery store. Um, so development there would really uh, connect the northern corridor of the city to downtown, which is was kind of split back in the 60s with the development of I-84. Do we know uh, how the city of Hartford residents have uh, voiced any concerns about this continuing development? Do they want to see uh, Dono North developed in this way? Are they worried about gentrification, Joe? Well, there are some concerns with that. Uh, city residents have come to certain uh, city meetings voicing those concerns about gentrification. Obviously, with these brand new apartment units, retail space, and these uh, you know glamorous new structures going up downtown, it will push the northern end of the city a little bit further. It might make um, some of uh, Hartford's uh, downtown um, um, assessments, um, you know, higher. So it might, it might be harder for some uh, lower income residents to access as far as, you know, retail and uh, apartment. Are there any examples of other development in other uh, cities uh, around their ballparks that would be a good fit for uh, the area around Dunkin' Donuts Park? Yeah. So actually back in March, we profiled uh, Birmingham, Alabama, uh, in 2013, they built a um, publicly financed uh, $64 million minor league ballpark, and they say it spurred uh, thousands of apartment units and condominiums down there, and they've added retail commercial space, and they've really developed a, a large portion around that downtown sector as that city, which is similarly compared to Hartford as far as its size. Um, so the, they've had good success with that. It remains to be seen what type of economic boon it'll be in Hartford. Um, looking looking ahead uh, in Worcester, there's also a $100 million minor league uh, ballpark that's proposed up there, and ground is going to be broken on that development in the, in the coming weeks, and they, they look to open that in 2021. So it'll be interesting to see how Hartford progresses in addition to Worcester. Mm. So uh, again, I mentioned uh, at the top of the segment that the Yard Goats are finishing up their third season. So um, when, uh, whether city residents or people from other parts of Connecticut come downtown, when could they possibly see some other things popping up around the stadium, Joe? Right. So the developer um, for RMS, Randy Salvatore, said that development could begin within the next six months or so. Um, there's a number of legal documents that are still being finalized, construction plans. Uh, Mayor Brown has been very careful about uh, putting a timetable on when this all could be completed. Um, but the city council has a- approved the first phase of this project, about $46 million 
um, to begin the project. And that'll, the first development phase will be about 18 months once that begins and other developments within the next five to six years. So all goes according to plan within the next six years or so. Um, things might be looking very different around Duncan Jones Ballpark. Uh, but again, uh, still waiting to see if Center Plan, the former developer, appeals uh, the court's decision, um, and that could then uh, delay that development even further. Uh, potentially, the 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 law the law team that's helping out the city they they don't uh, expect the the appeals to be um, to be granted. They think their their case is strong and that the courts and the jury were uh, adamant in their decisions. And um, like I said earlier, the developer is allowed to move forward with the project as is, even with the appeals filed. Joe Cooper is web editor for the Hartford Business Journal. We'll tweet out some links to uh, stories by the Hartford Business Journal related to development in downtown North, known as Dono. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Today's show, produced by Lydia Brown. Uh, thanks to our technical producer, Kyone Wolf. Learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live from your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>